Well, good morning. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here uh, at Church in the Square. And today we actually are celebrating our 105th Sunday together, which may seem like kind of a random number, except it's the beginning of our third year. We have now been together as a church for two years And only God would have known and only God could have known that a journey that began in an elementary school uh, two years ago would now be in one of our elders' basements through live stream, uh, connecting with all of the different ways that we're gathered uh, as the church today. And yet uh, so grateful that our connection is not contingent upon those kinds of external forms or demonstrations, but ultimately by God's spirit. And so we rejoice at God's faithfulness. Over these past uh, couple of years, people have been saved, people have been baptized, marriages have been strengthened, confession has begun to take hold uh, of our church, and we have seen God be faithful, and and really in some ways that we don't even know about. He's protected and cared for us, And, and so we're really grateful for all that the Lord has done and his faithfulness to us as his church. Um, I want to remind us that the reason that we're stepping into this live stream space today is because this is where we ultimately see ourselves going as a church, even by God's grace, when we begin to gather uh, in January of next year in in real space and real time again, believing that that will be the soonest possible time to do that, but excited to see uh, that happen by God's grace very soon. So grateful to be with you. Let's open up God's word together. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 will be our primary text. Romans chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You get to Acts and Romans. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, turn back to the left or simply type in Romans 2, 14 through 16. I wonder if you've noticed something about the Ten Commandments. Besides the first four, which are no other gods before me, no graven images, not taking the Lord's name in vain and keeping the Sabbath holy, the other six are perfectly intuitive. And in other words, they come naturally to us. They're, they're kind of obvious. We, we get them. We, we, in some ways, don't need to be taught them. They, they're instinctual to us. They just make sense. We almost don't even need someone to tell us that these second six are right and wrong. Think about it. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. We, we just know these things, right? This, this is actually what led the late renowned atheist Christopher Hitchens to decry the Ten Commandments as a whole. The first four, he suggested, were just simply egotistical on God's part, demanding and self-centered is what he said. The, and and the, the other six, if you will, Hitchens felt were basic and obvious. He said they were a work in progress and therefore unnecessary to state and certainly not divine in their origin. And so Hitchens actually wrote his own Ten Commandments, but let's be honest, we all sort of do that. We all sort of write our own ethic and our own morality. But isn't that amazing? Over half of God's central moral code is basic and obvious to us as human beings. Think about that. To be sure, we could read it as Hitchens did, is that they're too elementary and natural to us, evidence, therefore, that they are not of divine origin, that God didn't didn't write them. But there's another way to consider this alignment as well. The creator of the universe and the eternal judge of all virtue places comprehensible and livable rules at the center of his moral teaching. There, there is something of the intellect then and goodness of God within us from birth, along with other what theologians call God's communicable attributes. And yet, 
Though we are, we naturally know the good that we ought to do, we, we fail to do that good regularly, don't we? And though we know the bad we ought not to do, we, we regularly do those things anyway. Here we summarize humanity's basic nature and basic predicament. We are made, as we'll hear Paul teach us today, with the works of the law written upon our hearts, yet we lack the ability and virtue and even often the desire to even follow the most basic of these righteous guidelines. We'll say it this way today. There is something beautiful about us, yet there is also something broken. There is something beautiful about us, and yet there is something broken. This is going to be Paul's point in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. Though the conscience of mankind gives clarity about what is good and righteous, we will still be judged. We are judged not only because we do not obey our God-given conscience, but also because our conscience is in need of God-empowered reform. And so let's read Romans chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, and then let's pray together and let's consider God's word. Romans 2, 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them on the day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. These church are the very words of God and we say thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful today that we get to gather Uh, as your people, that we get to gather around your words, centered, anchored by your spirit in the truth and beauty that is revealed to us through the Bible about you, our, our heavenly father, our God. And so we just want to acknowledge that. That we're not coming today to have a little tweak to our human wisdom by something that's interesting and intriguing. We're not here to be entertained, hopefully to feel a little bit better and distracted from the challenges that we face. God, we are here to be built up in righteousness. We are gathered around your word because as the disciples said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And so God, would you fill us up today? Fill us up to overflowing with what we need more than anything else, which is you, our God. So speak to us as only you can, the one who intricately wove us together in our mother's womb. Would you speak to us, your kids? your children, your sons, your daughters. And we thank you, God, that you, you speak to us like a good and loving father because that's who you are. And so God, help us to be a children who listen. Help us to be a children who are attentive to your voice, who are submissive to your voice, who know that when you speak, it is out of love and righteousness. And so God, help us. Help us today to have those ears to hear and those eyes to see, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a beauty to our humanity. Theologically, this uh, inherent beauty is known as the image of God. And this doctrine is woven in through Paul's uh, ministry, including his current address here in Romans chapter 2. If you remember, he is essentially making the case that everyone sins and therefore everyone will be judged. You and me, every sin will be judged judged. 
were to anticipate a day then in which Jews and Gentiles, all peoples, will be judged based upon their obedience to the degree of truth and knowledge that God has given them. If you remember, Paul is speaking about the distinction that, that Jews and Gentiles both have received the truth, though both in different kinds of ways, that we're accountable to God for what God has shown us, specifically what Paul explained. In the previous passage was that Gentiles did not have God's law, that is the law of Moses recorded in the Old Testament. So they only have this relational awareness of God through creation. That was Romans 1, 19 and 20. Jews, on the other hand, have the fullness of God's law. So they have this legal and relational awareness of God's will. That's what we've covered thus far in chapter 1 and then on into chapter 2. And that's where we'll pick up here in verse 14 in chapter 2. So look at Romans 2, verse 14. It says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Okay, so this is actually pretty interesting. This is pretty cool. The, the word for, gar, in, in Greek has been repeated for a fourth time from the beginning of this particular thought. And at the beginning of these particular thoughts, in our case, the beginning of four different sentences or verses right in a row. Look at, look at verse 11. See that word for. Look at verse 12. The, the word for is there again. And then also at the beginning of 13 and 14. It's important then that we remember that though Paul is writing a letter to his brothers and sisters, the church, in about 57 AD in Rome, he is systematic, Paul is, and logical in his correspondence. He is their friend and their teacher. And using the word for, in, in, essence, in essence, is like using the word because. And, and here, Paul weaves then his argument together with this particular word. And when we follow this sort of purposeful train of thought back to its beginning, we make it all the way back to verse 10. Look at it with me. Verse 10 in chapter 2. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Then we get because or for God shows no partiality in verse 11. And then we move into 12. Because or for all have sinned with or without the law and are judged accordingly. And then we get into 13. Because or for it's not about hearing the law. It's about obeying and doing the law. And then lastly here in verse 14, because or for, now we get this, this thought here and it's all connected. Paul is laying out a systematic argument, all connected to the justice of God or God's lack of favoritism, his lack of partiality when it comes to judgment. Are you tracking with me, church? Are you with me in this? I know I can't hear you, and, but, but are you with me in this? God's nature then is central to Paul's argument here and what he is laying out. God himself is the centerpiece of our text today. He is the centerpiece of every text we could possibly read from the scriptures. And here, namely, God's equity is demonstrated in the doctrine of the image of God, or what is known by scholarly types in Latin as the Imago Dei. The image of God is a vital understanding of God's just judgment in general. And Paul's point here in, in Romans in particular Let's make a clear connection between this doctrine and this particular passage so we don't miss it. Notice again in verse 14. Let's look at it again. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, and, and this phrase is key, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Did you see that? By nature, Paul says. There is something about the nature of Gentiles. In, in other words, all nations, all peoples, 
all ethnicities. There is something about the human being which innately images or reflects creator God. We are able to naturally do what the law requires. In our soul, at the center of our being, we have an understanding, Paul says, about God's righteous decrees. This is precisely why six of the Ten Commandments are instinctual to us, not because they are basic and obvious, but because we have been made to know and live within the order and rule and goodness of God. And so Paul says, in a manner of speaking, Gentiles are a law to themselves. This does not mean that they can be self-governed and self-deterministic. Rather, it means within their very being, they have a comprehension and a consciousness which rightly leads them to the things of God even without the Mosaic law. Do you see? There is a beauty about us, which is the very evidence of our creator. We are beautiful. And this inherent beauty and value is what distinguishes human beings from the rest of creation. 16th century Spanish nun Teresa of Avila wrote this about the image of God. Each of us, she says, has a soul, but we forget to value it. We don't remember that we are creatures made in the image of God. We don't understand the great secrets hidden inside us. An incalculable worthiness, which points to the exceedingly greater glory of God, is buried within the nature of every human being, including you and me. This unique classification is stamped upon us from the outset of the creation story. That's what is recorded in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From this beginning, New Testament writers James and Paul pick up on the essence of humanity, this sort of basic definition and idea, and then it becomes central in our consideration to who we are biblically. We are beautiful in that we are made to reflect to one another and represent God in the world. We reflect God to one another because of our design and our nature and how we have been made, and we represent him in the world. This is how we reflect the image of God. And so in in Romans 2, verse 14, Paul is speaking about a particular aspect of the Imago Dei. We are made to comprehend and even obey the moral expectations of God that he has made plain to the human consciousness. This is why we should neither be opposed to the idea nor surprised that a person who is not a follower of Jesus can and does incredible good in this world. They are obeying an aspect of God's image, which has been graciously bestowed upon them, including all human beings, a gift with countless secrets of God's grace hidden therein. Secrets which all whisper the very name of God. Regretfully, we are not just beautiful, we are also broken. And that's where Paul heads next in verse 15. So look at it with me, Romans 2 verse 15 They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the works of the law are written on their hearts. And this is a really important phrase to consider because Paul doesn't say the law is written on their hearts. Rather, specifically, he says the works of the law. The special designation of having a heart which is actually writ with the law of God is reserved for a contrite, redeemed, and regenerate follower 
of Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. This was Jeremiah's promise in his prophetic writings in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The law of God is internalized beyond this common grace of the image of God for those who are followers of Jesus. When God's spirit indwells the life of a believer, he brings with him, the spirit does, the law of God, which binds up the heart of the Christian. That's what Paul picks up on in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when he wrote, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. See, when you are in Christ, church, The law of God is indeed written upon the new heart, which you have received by grace through the spirit of the living God. But in Romans chapter two, Paul says it is merely the works of the law, which are written upon the hearts of these Gentiles he's speaking about. Paul isn't speaking about all Gentiles in Rome, but these specific Gentiles he is using to explain God's non-partiality that he has already made clear in verse 11. For them... The law has not been fully internalized by way of a new heart, but rather the general good and evil of God's will and world are are known to them. We might say that the works of the law is the basic morality embedded within the consciousness of every person. However, notice in verse 15, their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. So even though the works of the law are written upon their hearts, the basic moral code of God, they and we, right? Because it's not just them. They and we do not always obey and we fail to regularly obey God. That's why on the day of wrath, their own conscience, along with God's ultimate judgment, their own conscience will bear witness against them. These Gentiles do not have the fullness of the law, but they break even the aspects of God's law that they know intuitively. And breaking the law, breaking God's law, breaks us because we have been designed to flourish within the loving boundaries of God's righteousness. This is known as the doctrine of total depravity. This idea is connected to original sin. When when and where Adam and Eve, our first parents, rejected God and his clear will for their lives, Though they were made in God's image, they rebelled against God's sovereign rule over their lives. Because of their sin then, we are now not only born with the image of God imprinted upon our souls, but we are born with this stain of sin. Total depravity teaches us not only that we all sin, but that we are unable not to sin. A double negative leads to a positive. means that that's what we do. We sin. More precisely, we are unable to save ourselves because of this inherited pollution. And without Christ, our depravity leads to an eternal captivity of sin and darkness and separation from God. And so the psalmist testifies about this ubiquitous brokenness in Psalm 14:3, when he writes, They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Apostle John, along with other New Testament writers, records this understanding of humanity through his his own words, rather through the words of Jesus, I should say, in John 5. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And it it led Paul to say, perhaps most memorably in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that you are dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. 
sin is a disease which has overcome and destroyed our existence. So even though the image of God is bestowed upon all humanity, the defilement of sin is also woven into our nature. We are beautiful, but we are broken. We are beautiful, and yet we are broken. Ultimately, the point of the image of God within us is that we would see God. It's not simply about knowing ourselves, it's about seeing him. And ultimately, the depravity even of our existence points us to God. See, the divine attributes of God are organized in these two distinct categories, communicable and incommunicable attributes. His communicable attributes are those attributes we share with God as his image bearers. All of who we are, are is meant, all of who we are is meant to draw us to God by our connection through these communicable attributes and by realizing we, we don't have a lot of his attributes. Marvadon explains this, this unique way that we're drawn to God through his image in her book, In the Beginning God. She writes, this sense of being made in God's image calls us all constantly to look for it in others and to do what we can to help them acknowledge it and to realize it by joining in worship. We thereby carry to others the answer to their inmost longing, a yearning for union with the Trinity, a thirst to respond with adoration to the God who made them. All of who we are and what we experience in relationship with each other causes us to more deeply long for God himself. You see, God is all beauty and no brokenness. God is all beauty and no brokenness. Can I get an amen? The beauty then we sense in others never fully satisfies, does it? So we long for more and only find satisfaction in God. The brokenness we sense in others causes us to search for meaning and relationship and love, which does not disappoint and only finds true fulfillment in God himself. This is what makes God incredibly paradoxical, hard to understand, because he is both incomprehensible, yet he is fully knowable. God is incomprehensible. He is well beyond our intellect, and yet he is completely knowable. He has made himself known through his creation, through relationship with his creation. So God is all beauty and no brokenness. In, in our search then to, to be satisfied, in our search, we have a tendency to exaggerate beauty or to exaggerate brokenness. This, this, is what, this happens actually corporately, collectively, communally, when we're all together, it also happens individually. Our personal sins, I think, are pretty familiar to us. When we exaggerate our beauty, we grow arrogant and boastful and self-reliant. Pride in all of its forms is the overextension of the image of God or the beauty he has bestowed upon us. When we exaggerate our brokenness, though, we are beat down constantly. We're riddled with thoughts of shame. Shame in all its forms is an overextension of total depravity and our brokenness. See, neither of these are the fullest picture of who we are. All of that must find satisfaction and hope in God. But in our search, we overextend one over the other. And we don't just do this individually. So I want to give attention, not just to those personal sins, but to help us see these personal sins as sort of laid out here in Romans chapter 2 and how they're extended into systems and structures which overextend beauty and brokenness, keeping in mind that to do so is a denial here of Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 2. 
So, so together, let's think about the story of our nation and politics to help us understand the nature of humanity as it's communicated here in Paul, but in the whole of scripture. One Christian historian and biographer explains that in order to be a self-governed society away from the monarchy of England, our founding fathers understood two realities. In fact, these two realities must be affirmed if a people are to be free and self-governed, as was the intention of the 13 colonies in the mid-18th century. Those two realities or those ideas are that people are fallen and yet people are redeemable. People are fallen and yet people are redeemable. Humanity's fallenness leads to constructing a government structure which preserves and protects the law and upholds citizens as well as leaders accountable. Humanity's redeemability led the founders to establish the necessity of a freedom of religion, a religious liberty, not as a Christian nation, but a nation of religious, that was religiously free. Government could not set up a state church, in other words. Now, our, our current major political parties agree actually on these two truths, but one overextends one and the other overextends the other. And one is often celebrated and another aspect of our humanity is neglected. To be sure, this will be a very general and broad sweeping comparison, but nonetheless, I hope it's helpful because many of us are having conversations, perhaps for the very first time around these things. And if we're not careful, we begin to trumpet our own sort of political views and fail to be grounded in the word of God and in God himself. And so by God's grace, this is what this practice will do for us. See, especially in this politically contentious climate, perhaps more so than any of us have ever experienced, followers of Jesus are, are, are those who need to be grounded in the scriptures. And, and here's really where these two major parties, I think, err. Conservatism extends the idea of humanity's fallenness, that we are messy and broken and neglecting, or at least uh, to the misprioritization or the deprioritization of the fact that we are redeemable. Progressives, on the other hand, extend and overemphasize our redeemability and fail to rightly see and frame our fallen nature. See, what the founding fathers understood about our country and what we realize about a people in a moral, a mortal rather, rather republic is that we must be treated as both fallen yet redeemable, or as we've been saying, broken yet beautiful, doctrinally, we would say totally depraved and yet made in the image of God in order for self-governance and true freedom to exist and to thrive. Now, this is not about our country becoming a Christian nation. This is about how our humanity is naturally acknowledged and ought to be flourishing within human institutions, though imperfectly so. So Republicans overextended total depravity and champion politicians and policies accordingly. Democrats overextend the image of God and champion politicians and policies accordingly, which brings us to our most recent election cycle. It's comfortable to talk about politics perhaps at a broad level, but now let's talk about what's going on right here and right now. And by way of oversimplification and holding off on, on many details, uh, these two major party candidates, I think we can boil down their respective platforms to two different statements, or really one statement that's kind of massaged in different, different ways. And it's the same that it was four years ago. Republicans want to make America great again, and Democrats believe that America is already great. Now, neither side would say we are perfect nor that we have lost all hope. Both major candidates reveal each of their respective parties overextension of a self-governed country. People are fallen yet redeemable, beautiful yet broken. 
the incumbent assumes people are fallen and broken and therefore says we need to make America great again. And much of his messaging focuses on this presumption, and it's not new. Ronald Reagan chose that language of law and order decades ago, with which we are simply experiencing a bit of a remix, if you will, for our modern consumption. The focus of conservatives is upon protecting us from the country's brokenness and fallenness. The Democratic challenger wants to make clear that people are redeemable and therefore has responded to the conservatives' mantra, claiming that the true America was and is and always will be great. There is a dignity and a worth in the progressive viewpoint which needs to be highlighted, celebrated, and nurtured. Much of this messaging focuses on the presumption which uh, former President Barack Obama popularized through the language of hope over 12 years ago. And therefore, this is why just this week in the city where Jacob Blake was shot seven times, one candidate visited the police and the other candidate phoned the victim and met with his family. What we see in the story of America is the reality of Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 coming to bear. Our national consciousness has already and is yet again accusing us. Let's think about it. And even in our own story, if everyone is made in the image of God, beautiful and redeemable, then why was this union, why was this nation formed through the massacre of indigenous people? Why was this nation built on the backs of enslaved black people from Africa? Our present tension is not despite our country's sacred past. In many ways, it is because of our past and our collective depravity. But if our, our country is only broken and totally depraved and completely lost and beyond hope, how do we account for the good which is produced within and, and out of this country through things like medicine and technology and through global missionary efforts? See, we are beautiful and we are broken. This is why, or rather this is usually the, the point when many well-meaning Christians speak something like Jesus for president or, you know, I want Jesus on the ballot and that's why he's my only person I'd ever vote for or something like that. But we have a tendency, I think, or rather we have to face this, this idea of how misguided our search has become and how deeply ingrained sin is. We actually think we would choose Jesus. In, in a 2009, uh, a little-known Georgia blogger published a piece, which I think you don't need to read the whole thing. In some respects, the title summarizes well the point of the piece. And the title is this, the last time Jesus was on a ballot, Barabbas won the election. A refresh of this theme has been circulating in social media recently. The idea makes us face something unsettling about us. We do not choose Jesus. We would not have chosen Jesus. And regularly, daily, we do not choose Jesus. We write our own Ten Commandments. Our conscience accuses us even for what we may plainly know about God. And Jesus was not even recognizable to us. He would not have been. Paul even writes this at the end of Romans chapter 2, verse 16, this particular portion of the passage. He says, On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, all that is within my heart, which is broken and betrays the beauty that God has in 
is, is ingrained in, in my soul. The things I know and the things I am even not aware of, all that is hidden in my heart and in your heart will be judged. This includes that deception around every political cycle that ultimately we believe we are right, that we believe we see all of this perfectly, that we even would choose Jesus if he was on the ballot. Jesus is the truest human being who ever lived. However, he was not made in the image of God. He was the image of God. Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And, and yet Isaiah tells us something completely unexpected about Jesus. Hear this from Isaiah 53. For, for he grew up before him like a tendered shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. My brothers and sisters, please hear the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God, who was all beauty and no brokenness, allows his beauty to be veiled and allows himself to be broken for us. He was not esteemed and we would not have esteemed him. And he made himself, he makes himself a candidate for sorrow and Pain. So when he was on trial, Pontius Pilate offered the crowd a choice between releasing Jesus or releasing a common criminal named Barabbas. Jesus or Barabbas. Free Jesus and kill Barabbas or free Barabbas and kill Jesus. They crucified Jesus. We did not choose him. We would not have chosen him. We do not choose Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that God in Christ has chosen you by grace through faith. Paul is telling us that our conscience is insufficient to save us. We fail to do the good we know, and, and the good we know is eternally limited. And a broken conscience is only mended by a renewed heart, with not just the works of the law, but the law itself written upon our hearts and the image of God fully flourishing within us. See, a human conscience must be taught and trained not left unhindered to express as it pleases. The conscience of a man or a woman is only virtuous to the extent it is in line with the righteous law of God and in tune with the spirit of God. Whatever impulses of the conscience which are misaligned or have been wrongly denied, these will bear witness against us in the day of wrath, the day when God judges all secrets by Christ Jesus. You see, we may know innately six commandments out of 10, but the first four are entirely lost upon us without Christ. And if you miss the first four, you don't get any of them. If you miss the first, thou shalt have no other gods. You miss them all. Because of his work on the cross, he takes our beautiful yet broken hearts and reforms us fully after his own image, a nature which will one day be like Christ, all beauty and no 
brokenness. And so Heavenly Father, help us today to believe that. Help us today to trust you in that. Forgive us for the ways that we choose perhaps the image of God, our beauty and highlight and only think about that and refuse our brokenness. Wash us clean from the shame of believing we are only broken and not made beautiful in your sight. And as we hold both of those intention, Father, would you point us to yourself how Jesus Christ has done a work to make us whole. Beautiful yet broken, yet one day all shall be well in Christ. So Father, help us in this, grow us in this, unite us in this, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.